Welcome, everybody. Um, nice to see such an excellent audience. Um, I'm Julian Legrand. I'm a professor of social policy here, and I'm chairing this session on big society and social policy uh, in Britain. Both the big society... Well, big society is clearly a contested term, um, and indeed, actually, arguably, so is social policy. So we're hopefully going to learn quite a lot um, from our very distinguished panel, who I will just uh, introduce uh, now. Uh, they then will then speak in order for about um, 10 minutes uh, or so, uh, and then we're going to throw it open to uh, your comments and questions. So, without further ado, uh, let me introduce our uh, distinguished um, panel, which is, we start with David Lewis. Uh, who is a colleague of mine, um, Professor of Social Policy and Development here. Uh, he's carried out um, research in this whole area. He's worked on the issues of development policy and the role of non-governmental organisation NGOs in several contexts, including Bangladesh, the Philippines and the UK, of course. Um, and he's recently written a book uh, on non-governmental organisations and development, uh, published by Roundtree. Um, Francis Crook um, is, was appointed director of the Howard League of Penal Reform in 1986 and has developed the role ever since. Um, she uh, has been responsible for research programs and campaigns to raise public concern about suicides in prison, overuse of custody, poor conditions in prison, uh, people in trouble and mothers in prison. And the, the, start, the uh, Howard League for Prin uh, Penal Reform under her direction, has expanded enormously. It's now about 20 times, I think, bigger than it was um, uh, when it began. Um, and she's a well-known commentator in the national media and frequently does um, a lot of work on radio and television, including as a panel member of Any Questions, as we've just been discussing. Um, she's a, and, um, of course, her most distinguished role is as a visiting fellow here at the London School of Economics, where she's a, a visiting fellow at the Mannheim Centre. Um, Carl Wilding is uh, NCVO's, the National uh, Council for Voluntary Organisations, head of research. Um, and he's also a visiting fellow, but sadly for him, not at the LSE, but at the Cass Business School, um, uh, which uh, the Centre for Charity Effectiveness, where he also contributes to the ESRC's Centre for uh, Giving and Philosophy. He's done a lot of work on voluntary sector, um, uh, the relative roles of the state and, vo and voluntary organisation and is a trustee of the St Albans Centre for Voluntary Service. Um, Rory Stewart um, uh, has a remarkable CV, um, has served briefly as an officer of the, of the Black Watch um, uh, and he served in the British Embassy in Indonesia and has been British representative in Montenegro, I think. And um, from 2000 to 2002, he walked 6,000 miles across Pakistan, Iran, Afghanistan, India, and Nepal, and wrote a book on it called The Places in Between. Uh, his second book, The Prince of the Marshes, was about his time as a deputy governor of two provinces in southern Iraq. Um, he's lived in Kabul, uh, where he founded Turquoise Mountain, investing in the development of Afghanistan's traditional uh, credit, uh, crafts and rehabilitation of the city. And he was appointed as the Ryan Professor of Human Rights at Harvard University um, uh, in 2009. And finally, and perhaps most distinguished, he was elected as a Member of Parliament uh, in, for Penrith and the Border on the 6th of May 2010. So that is our panel. Um, and we will move straight on, I think, to begin with uh, David, who's going to tell us both about the big society and social policy. 
Thanks very much, Julian, and uh, it's a pleasure to be here tonight. I'm going to try and give a bit of an overview and a critical account of where I see the big society going. It was an idea launched by David Cameron in July 2010, and it's basically about, he says, giving people more control over their own lives. He spoke of it as a huge culture change and a dramatic redistribution of power from elites. And the idea seems to centre on three main elements. The idea of volunteering and philanthropy, ideas about localism and community empowerment, and also the long-standing agenda of um, you know, public sector reform. If we try and go more deeply into the idea and the content, and if you like, the uh, you know, the origins of it. it. It seems to me to be quite an alarming and diverse cocktail of different ideas. It draws on a heady mix of some new and some not so new ideas about social policy and society and institutions. In this mix we have, for example, Robert Putnam's ideas about uh, social capital and the, and the decline of um, you know, participation and you know, citizen involvement. And, and the anxieties about that uh, decline. We also have the more recent work of Philip Blonde and his book Red Tory, the ideas of progressive conservatism and the need for new rethinking of radical social reform. We also have a little bit of Amitai Etzioni's communitarianism in there, the idea that we have to remoralize society to try and deal with social problems. Then, of course, amongst the older ideas, we have issues like Victorian charity and philanthropy, much older ideas. We have also talk of Edmund Burke's little platoons of civic association. And, of course, behind all of this, we also have the Thatcherite agenda of privatisation. So the argument that I want to make this evening is that while the rhetoric about the big society is about giving people more control over their own lives... I think the ideology of it, which I think is about privatisation, and also the opportunism, which is basically about managing the cuts and the austerity, threatens to undermine any meaningful idea that might be in there about the rethinking of citizens, state and market relationships uh, for the common good. Um, recently, Francis Maud, one of the supporters of the idea in the government, has said that the Conservative Party would have moved on the big society idea even without the financial crisis. And so there is clearly a deeper political agenda in there, rather than just a way of managing uh, cuts. So the supporters of the big society idea argue that it both empowers people and it's a way to save money. So, for example, in Liverpool, where there are you know, some of the, uh, the most uh, stringent local authority cuts at the moment, there are people there arguing that it'll be possible to keep libraries and sports facilities going through placing them in the hands of community trusts. Uh, Philip Blonde has provided some quite interesting data about experimenting with other kinds of, uh, you know, new arrangements, you know, for local services um, through, for example, you know, community trust like the Sandwell Community Care Trust, where he argues that 
these new arrangements make it possible to spend more on care and less on administration. For the critics of the big society idea, I think there are three, three issues which have been coming out recently. One is the idea that you know, by passing responsibility onto the so-called big society, we simply further burden the most vulnerable. And uh, Tim Stevens, the Bishop of Leicester, recently wrote about the risks that he saw from a faith perspective of the idea that although people may be prepared to step in to deal with um, the consequences of cuts, the danger is that social care gets left in the hands of amateurs. Okay, second set of problems is the changing, changing, um, uh, the changing arrangements in the uh, procurement of services. So, for example, local authorities are able to contract out to new forms of providers. But I think critics argue that this risks lowering the quality standards and the levels of accountability between service users and these new forms of provider. And then finally, and I think this is a surprising sort of issue actually, is that the status and role of the voluntary sector, which many of us would think would be at the heart of all of this, also seems to be in doubt. Um, one would expect the voluntary sector to be a key ally, but actually um, one of the architects of the idea of the big society, Lord Way, uh, recently alienated a lot of the UK charity sector with an attack on what he called inefficient uh, sort of um, a big charity you know as being a, a, you know, bureaucratic and inefficient so many in the voluntary sector are, are also up in arms about the idea of the big society so what are the things that we should be debating well here are, here are four things which I think are problems which we need to discuss. The first is that I think the big society idea lacks a sense of realism. If, for example, you know, we're going to reinvigorate uh, cooperatives and mutualism, then in practice, these kinds of new structures are going to need a lot of support and a lot of resources if they're going to work and if they're going to be sustained. And it's not clear where those resources will come from in a time of austerity. I think the second set of problems revolves around the, the prediction that, that the big society will contribute to more inequality. It's going to be the middle classes who are able to respond, and it's not going to be the poorest or the most uh, vulnerable. There's also going to be, I think, a likely increase in the burden of women's unpaid employment as part of the taking up of this slack. I think the third set of problems is that it's potentially divisive. Um, there are going to be conflicts in a time of straightened resources around priorities and also around public space. And there was an interesting example in the, in the papers last week about one of the flagship free school initiatives uh, the one by Toby Young, whose father must be turning in his grave, I would think, um, you know, being moved into uh, premises in West London that is likely 
to uh, to um, uh, displace at least uh, 20 other voluntary groups you know, currently occupying that building. These are organizations working on everything from, uh, from homelessness to refugee issues and a whole range of, of ongoing voluntary sector activities. <coughs> and then finally, I think uh, there's the problem that the big society is, in a sense, based on a false premise. In other words, you know, the idea uh, that there's a crisis of participation and citizen involvement, I think, is a myth. And although we know that, for example, trade union membership and uh, political party membership has declined you know, over recent decades, there's plenty of data around to show very stable levels of volunteering in society and a growth of participation in many kinds of new movements, associations, and NGOs. So I'm probably getting close to my conclusion time. Um, I would say then that I think it's really too early to say how this big society idea will pan out, but I'm not particularly optimistic. The, there is, there is, I think, a lot of you know, you know, potential around increasing employee-owned businesses and ideas about the new mutualism. But I think if it's a recipe for comprehensive state withdrawal, then there are very rough times ahead. And I think the big, uh, uh, the big society idea increasingly looks more like a smokescreen for state withdrawal. And if that's the case, I think it potentially undermines the integrity of both the state and of wider civil society. And even if we go back as far as uh, the, the voluntary action you know, report of Lord Beveridge in 1948, one of the you know, foundations of modern social policy, even then he saw the role of the voluntary sector as an independent and pioneering and a collaborative space and a collection of organisations. And it's that independence which I think is uh, threatened by the big society. I think what's important about you know, civil society or the voluntary sector is that it's a non-directed space in which people organise in pursuit of their own and wider public uh, goals. So in the end, I think the big society embodies some wrong-headed values. It, I think on the whole, people want to use, not run, sports centres and libraries. <laughs> and the the um, and if you think about it, the you know the establishment of the NHS was really about trying to overcome the patchy provision provided by the big society of the day. You know the patchwork of different kinds of charitable, philanthropic, and other you know providers. So I think. You know, my concluding point is that we undermine this contract between state and citizens at our peril. And now, uh, Francis Crook. Sorry. Good evening. Um, for me, the puff about a big society was epitomised on one day last year when um, George Osborne announced cuts to child benefit and then went and drank 
Chateau Petrus at £1,000 a bottle with David Cameron to raise money for the, the, the Conservative Party. They drank between them that evening, the people at that, that do, the equivalent of two librarians. Um, now, the big society does not mean we're all in it together. It's an arcane vision, I think, built, constructed by people who had too much classical education. Somehow they think we should all wander about in togas, in the agora, discussing rather arcane things. So somehow we can run a city like that. Well, that city was based on slavery, and that city was based on the enslavement of women. So I don't want to go back to 5th century Athens. I like Athens, but not 5th century Athens. Um, so... I think we've got to think of the big society as this concept as predicated on a sort of passive and compliant work of the unpaid to fill in the gaps of while at the same time the state is being rolled back. So a hundred years of progress in, in the development of a, of, a, of a welfare state is being undone. Um, and so this, this structure, which was based on expertise, which we, we developed a, a state that was based on professionalism and public service and public service ethos, is being undone. And it's being wrapped up in the, this um, false idea of a big society. I think it's being marketed as something benign um, in order to, get, to try and pretend that lots of people will help each other out. I think it's a load of tosh. Um, Philip Pullman, really interestingly, was, was talking about how he said it was an assault on the public sector, a sort of a market fundamentalism that is a kind of fanaticism, and it's going to do terrible damage to the fabric of everything decent and humane. And I agree with him. I agree with Philip Pullman about a lot of things. Um, I think it's a cover for the biggest dismantling and concerted destruction of accountable and professional public services ever seen. Now, I'm going, to, I'm going to compare it to something that will be controversial, because I'm going to compare it to the bombing of Baghdad, right? I'm not known for mincing my words. What happens when you bomb a city is you destroy the infrastructure, and then you cross your fingers, like they did in Baghdad, and hope that the people who are left, the people who survive, will somehow sort out their own water, electricity, education, with no, pla no planning or anything. And that, I think, is, is the equivalent of what's happening here um, to the NHS, to education, to almost every other uh, public service. Interestingly, it's not happening in prisons. That's something quite different, and I'm not going to talk about prisons. I'll answer questions about it. Um, the trouble with our society is that it doesn't fit into this sort of 5th century Athens um, model because we're very complicated. We have an incredibly complicated structure. We're also too populous for it. Uh, we have sophisticated democracies, and this means we need active bodies. Uh, we're not just a collection of fragments, and we need to be a coherent and organised whole. We need government. We need government at a local level too. I'm a huge advocate of local government, partly because I must admit I was a locally elected councillor for eight years, and I think local government is great. I think it's wonderful. It works incredibly well. My concern is that what, what's happening, I, I point to two, two issues under the, the Big Society banner. One is outsourcing to, uh, to, to private sector or to charities, and the other is the cutting of services and the relying on volunteers, and they're all kind of muddled up together. In my local borough, which is Barnet, they're going to cut uh, the entire youth service, 
And when I said, well, what are you going to do instead? They said, oh, I think we're going to have a conversation with the Boy Scouts. Um, even Gus O'Donnell, head of the civil service, is concerned that the implications of for democracy and has asked for an investigation into the democratic impact of the localism agenda. Now, I'm in favour of localism. I'm not in favour of destroying lo uh, local services. They're different things. And dismantling of the health service structure. And interestingly, the appointments commission um, means that there'll be no public accountability or scrutiny of things like the, the NHS. Again, I have to declare that I'm a non-executive director of a primary care trust. I feel that is a public appointment, and my responsibility is to the public, and my uh, public uh, you know, engagement with the NHS, that won't be the case anymore. There's no accountability, which is incredibly important, lines of accountability. Um, for criminal justice, the suggestion that volunteers and charities should somehow do the job of supervising offenders, I think is just naive. Um, there are a lot of excellent volunteers working extremely hard and doing really quality work in the criminal justice system. But there are difficult issues. If you're dealing with sex offenders, if you're dealing with child prisoners, if you're dealing with confidentiality and security, they're all highly complex, and while some of the work can be done by volunteers, it has to be overseen, and it has to be accountable, and it has to be managed, because it will be a disaster if it goes wrong. Now, I would juxtapose this whole big society thing against a great society, which was, of course, you'll remember, those history students here, um, Lyndon Johnson's idea of a great society. And I think the two are really polar opposites. Um, and the, the real challenge for facing a government is not about reform of the public sector. I don't, I don't know why the government's got obsessed with the public sector or dis destroying the public sector. The real challenge is to deal with the lack of democracy, openness and accountability of the corporate world and the financial world. Let's remember the banking crisis was not the fault of local government, the NHS, or probation officers. <laughs> The Great Society was a fantastic thing. Um, it was initiated by Lyndon Johnson, but it was carried on by Richard Nixon and by Gerald Ford. There was a, a, a concerted work done by different parties who continued it on. It was based on civil rights. It was a war on poverty. It introduced um, neighborhood action, Head Start, which was, of course, the, the precursor to Sure Start Nurseries here. Um, a funding for public schools, Medicare, Medicaid, arts funding, public broadcasting, public transport in America, consumer protection, cultural centres, environmental protection. But it was bipartisan. And I think the problem, one, uh, fundamentally the problem with the big society is that it's very partisan and it doesn't have buy-in from other people, from other parties. I'm accepting that, obviously, the Liberal Democrats who just say yes to everything. Um, I am in favour of volunteering. I have been a volunteer all my life. I work in the voluntary sector. Um, I do volunteering in my local community. Volunteers do a fantastic job. That's not the point. Um, it's not about that. It's about the big society is not really about volunteering, it's about dismantling, it's about destruction, it's about destroying the state. Now I think we should support volunteering, but we should tell the government that the destruction and dismantling of the state and dismantling of the, of the system and accountability and democracy is fundamentally wrong and we won't have it. Thank you.
but apart from that, you quite like it, really. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, Carl Wilding. Good evening, everyone. Um, I think I want to go home now. Um, I, I work for NCVO, which is a membership of organisation of about eight and a half thousand organisations, and. Um, Almost my sort of starting point is to both agree and disagree, I think, with many of the things that, that both Francis uh, and David have said. Um, some polling by Ipsos Mori, uh, most recently in September, said that uh, only 45% of the population had even heard uh, of the Big Society. Quite what proportion of those understand what the Big Society is, I'm not sure. I'd guess that probably 76% of the population who do understand the big society are now in this room uh, uh, together. Uh, that might go down to 74% after I've spoken, but uh, 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 there you go. So there's a lot of misunderstanding, and I think in, in some respects the only thing that is clear about the big society for me at the moment is that everybody is unclear uh, about what it is. Francis, for example, has just said that there isn't any agreement between the political parties. I think once you go below that branding that is the big society at the top and you start to think about some of those policies and themes underneath, I actually think perhaps almost one of the worrying things is how much agreement there is uh, uh, about big society ideas. Um, Toby Bloom from Urban Forum, who I guess some of you will know, described the big society as something old, something new, something borrowed and something blue. <laughs> I'll, uh, I'll let you work out which bit's the blue bit. He's coming next, uh, um, uh, uh, I think. But there are definitely themes within the big society in terms of mutualisation of public services, for example, charitisation of public services that were Labour Party policy. Yeah. So I think it is. I think there are elements of this agenda that are a critical disjuncture. Okay, but there is continuity as well. Uh, David Cameron talked about five themes. Uh, 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 David Lewis has, out, has outlined them in a slightly different way. Broadly speaking, these themes are giving communities more powers, such as uh, the right to bid for community assets, as, as David had, uh, uh, said in relation to free schools. Encouraging people to volunteer more or, or, or give more. Uh, uh, localism. Uh, supporting co-ops, mutuals, charities and social enterprises. Uh, where there is a disjuncture is we don't call these organisations the third sector anymore. Uh, and one of the things that we haven't talked about already is the transparency or the accountability agenda and, and publishing more data. Um, so uh, there's going to be an army of armchair auditors who are going to hold government to account. I was, I was debating with someone on Twitter last night, could we come up with a better name for uh, armchair auditors? And the best I could uh, uh, come up with was kitchen comptrollers, uh, uh, which was a bit weak, I suppose. Um, whatever you think about the big society, and, and my God, wherever I go, people tell me what they do think of it uh, uh, in the sector. I think one of the things that's actually incredibly useful about it is that we're having this debate now. It's opened up those debates. We are thinking about the respective roles of, of the state, of the private sector, because this is part of the big society agenda. We haven't mentioned that yet. Okay. Um, but also individuals and their communities. Okay. And we're thinking about the many contradictions that exist already. I mean, particularly around public service delivery and what's the respective uh, uh, role for voluntary organisations public service delivery? Is it identifying new issues? Is it maintaining people who deliver services already? The best example I can give you of that is that if you have a car accident, okay, and you, you need to be taken to the accident and emergency, okay, if you go over the road, 
the state will take you. Okay? But if you fly through the air, the voluntary sector will take you. Yeah? There are all sorts of so air ambulances, they're all charities, yeah? But the the road ambulance service is the state. And we need to, I think, unpick what some of those discussions uh, are and what some of those issues are. I'm going to differ slightly, I think, from our previous two speakers in terms of being overtly critical uh, of, of big society. Maybe I'm just paving the way for Rory uh, uh, here a little bit. And what I would suggest is that is the big society the only game in town in terms of thinking about political change? Okay, I, I recognise there's this paradox that, it, that we're trying to implement big society in a period of cuts. And the paradox is that the only way that you could start to implement these ideas is when you're in a situation where everything is just so bloody awful that there doesn't feel like there's an alternative. Okay? But also, is it the only game in town for the voluntary sector in the sense that some of the other attitudes that are, that are being put forward at the moment that are questioning, for example, whether or not we actually have a right to campaign? There are some of Rory's colleagues who are questioning whether or not voluntary organisations should be allowed to campaign. There are other uh, 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 people who are arguing whether or not we should be receiving any money from the state uh, uh, at all, despite the fact that we are delivering public services on behalf of the state. David talked a bit about what our starting point is for implementing this. As he said, the, uh, the figures consistently are about 40 or 45% of people are saying that they volunteer at least once a year. About a quarter of the adult population are saying that they volunteer at least once a month. Might I interject at this point that we know that now. We won't know that next year because the government has just cancelled the citizenship survey, which is the only means that we have for measuring whether or not the big society is working. I'm sure that has nothing to do with the fact that the citizenship survey has showed for the last five years that the proportion of the population volunteering has fallen. Okay. Um, we know, so, so we've got a base in terms of volunteering for the big society, if I'm being positive. We know, for example, that just over half the population, 56% of the population, said that they give to charity uh, uh, in a typical month. So there is what John Mowen of Southampton University has described as a civic core who can take forward some of these ideas uh, uh, very much, uh, as we've said already. But that's just what it is. It's a core. Okay. Um, John Mowen reckons that um, uh, two thirds of unpaid help is given by about seventy is given by seven percent of the population. Okay, so expanding that clearly is going to be a real challenge, and that that civic core is largely composed of educated middle-aged professionals. Okay. Um, we also have a core, I think, going forward in terms of a partnership with the state. Okay. One of the things that I think is weakest in, in, in the analysis of, of big society and, and the problems is this, is this sort of almost this crowding in, crowding out type thesis. This argument that if the government steps back from delivering some of these public services, voluntary action will, will flourish, philanthropy uh, uh, will flourish. Okay? I, I, I'm not so sure. Okay. For example, and, and if it does flourish, we have a heck of a long way to go. For example, uh, work by the University of Kent, uh, the Centre for Philanthropy there, suggests that there are only 100 gifts of a million pounds or more uh, in 2008-2009. Okay. If you think about the number of millionaires, if you think about that in relation to the bankers' bonuses that have been announced recently, I think that's a very small amount of money. 
Julian, how am I doing for time? You've got another three minutes. Crikey. Okay. Um, we've talked about the cuts uh, uh, already. I could probably spend the rest of the evening giving you examples of where, uh, of where the sector is being cut, and indeed where the sector is being cut uh, in the sense that there are, there are organisations that ministers have visited and said how wonderful they are and how much money they will save the exchequer over the medium term, and those organisations are facing in-year cuts this year. You'll look at Birmingham today. The five citizens' advice bureau in Birmingham are all going to be closed down because their local authority grant uh, has been cut. These are organisations that I think can save the state money in the, me in the medium term. And ditto, anybody who thinks that volunteering is a free good uh, that, that doesn't require any sort of organisation. Um, well, the, the organisation that I'm a trustee of is probably faring relatively well compared to other organisations. Nevertheless, the amount of money that it's trying to get by on this year to uh, broker and, and place volunteers is, is a pitiful amount of money, and we've had to go down to a four-day working week because we can't afford to pay the staff. And uh, it, it just seems nonsensical uh, uh, to me. Cuts is a big challenge, and, and maybe we can talk about that in, in the debate in a, a little more time. But just let me list some issues that we might discuss. Localism. These issues of, uh, of accountability and the fact that we will have to get used to postcode lotteries and that we won't have a two-tier system of public services. We will have a two-tier, a three-tier, a four-tier system, potentially, of public services. I think there's the issue of disappointment. Okay? Where uh, the sector's, uh, the income that the sector receives from governments is equivalent to 2% of government spending. To scale up and deliver the sorts of public services that, that some people are envisaging is going to take at the very least a generation. So how do we deal with these massive expectations that are being placed on voluntary organisations? I haven't talked about finance at all. I've been talking about funding actually. Uh, a lot of the time. One of the key elements of the big society agenda that, that some of you will know about is that we are going to shift from a funding relationship with government, whereby we are uh, given grants to deliver public services, to a financing relationship where we are given loans, where we, are, uh, uh, where we have to achieve outcomes and we are paid by our results. And this implies a massive, an absolute massive transfer of risk to voluntary and community organisations. So in other words, the participants in that relationship that are least able to bear that risk uh, uh, in the relationship. Um, I think this technological fetishism... Ah, I got that wrong, didn't I? We all think computers are important, basically, uh, uh, in this big society agenda. We all think that IT and, and some of these very good in initiatives like Landshare will come along and save us. So, um, and finally... There are attitudes issues. Okay? I think what sums up the big society for me is, is the question I'd like to ask you all, which is who's going to cut the grass? Okay? I live in a nice semi-detached house that's got a nice little grass verge in front of it that the local authority is currently spending money on okay? when it's cutting the grass in the summer. Okay? Should I cut the grass myself? How do I know that's re my responsibility? I live in a semi-detached house, so when I cut the grass, do I stop at the point where our houses meet? Because some people have been telling me if I, um, when they've cut the grass in front of their neighbour's house, they've had an argument. Yeah? Local authorities in some places are saying to people, don't cut the grass because you might fall over. 
then you might sue us. Okay? So if the big society is going to work, we're going to have to relearn the norms and the cultures of civic and civil behaviour that I think we might have lost. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Rory Stewart. Uh, it, it's not often that I, I get to defend 5th um, century Athens, the subjection of women, slavery, the bombing of Baghdad. Uh, <laughs> uh, that, that's the great thing about being a member of parliament, you get to. to um, essentially, I, I'm in a slightly difficult situation. I believe very strongly in the big society, and I see all the time in the constituency that I represent, Penrith and the Border, that this program has made a lot of difference to people's lives, that there are communities which were extremely frustrated, often at a very local level, parish, town level, many things they wanted to do, which they felt they were being prevented from doing. And over the last nine months, things have happened. Some of them relatively small, maybe not things that are of enormous interest to the audience in LSE, but things that make a lot of difference, obviously, to people's lives. Crosby Ravensworth, I'm going to be a bit boring by talking about specific examples, wanted affordable housing. These villages are being stripped out because there's no houses for young people to move into, or no houses they can afford. And from that, as you can imagine, the school collapses, the post office collapses, and you end up with a whole lot of holiday homes. They were not permitted to build these affordable houses. They have gathered together. They have got hold of some land. They've raised their own money. They're building their own affordable houses. Kirby Stephen. The entire planning system was preventing the community in Kirby Stephen from doing what they would like to do. And a lot of that was actually quite progressive. That's both housing for vulnerable people and for elderly people. It's opportunities for farmers. And this is the point. Right? These were things that were not being permitted to happen previously. They were being prevented by district council, by county council, by London, or even by further field. Renewable energy, the same. Now, the strange thing about all of this is that I see day to day, when I go around villages and communities, an enormous amount of enthusiasm, people taking a lot of confidence and getting a lot done. And yet, when I hear these speeches, it sounds as though these kind of projects should be impossible. And I haven't chosen those projects accidentally. That is, those communities that I've mentioned are the big society vanguard community projects, right? This is the first government pilot in the Eden Valley of Cumbria. It's not a random collection that I've selected. That is what big society is supposed to be about. It is instantiated there. And yet what we hear is that this shouldn't be able to happen because these people are, as the Bishop of Leicester suggests, amateurs because they are unable to have the kind of quality standards that are required. Because for all of the reasons that David has suggested, it should not be able to get off the ground. It's a bit like somebody looking at a large bird and saying it can't fly, right? So the question is, how does it fly? How notwithstanding the lack of resources, which David has pointed to, the lack of realism, which David has pointed to, the uneven nature of these projects, their necessary divisiveness, the fact that they are entirely unnecessary because there's been no decline in volunteerism, the fact that they're unwelcome because people, as David says, 
don't want to run these services, they want to use them. How come, if this is all true, they're actually working? Well, I think the answer to that is that there are problems with these projects, right? It's not that one wants to whitewash the projects or get into a be-all and end-all. One doesn't want to say that these projects are a replacement for government. The biggest enemy of the big society has been the overselling of this. Any attempt to suggest that what the big society is about is dismantling the National Health Service and replacing it with parish volunteers is insane. The point is not to cut government services and drop on people's heads responsibilities which they did not request. The point is to respond at community speeds to communities' desires, to understand that there are many, many things which should never have anything to do with the community, for which government is absolutely essential. It's not just brain surgery. It is extremely important aspects of management in prisons, the way in which our highways operate. In fact, many, many central elements of our lives and public services are never going to be able to be done at that kind of hyperlocal level. The space of big society, though, is the space of those projects which can be done, which communities want to do, and which have not been able to happen to date. And one of the odd things about the debates in the House of Commons is that my friends on the Labour side stand up again and again and say, of course, in principle, we're in favour of localism. In principle, we're in favour of hyperlocalism. But, and begin to explain why for the last 13 years they have not been willing to give communities power over neighbourhood plans, not been willing to give communities power to purchase their assets. And there are very good reasons for them, and we've heard them today. And these reasons mean another big caveat, which is that we need to understand what these projects can and cannot do. They will be, by their very nature, very local, very particular. They're not likely to be universal or replicable. They're not likely to be the kind of project where you can simply go and say, this is happening in Crosby Ravensworth, we will now do it exactly the same 1,000 times across the country. It may well be the case that certain kinds of projects work very well in a rural area. For example, I represent the largest, most sparsely populated constituency in England. It may be that the communities in that area prefer to organize themselves in this way and that a community in London doesn't. Fine. Right? That may be the limit to that kind of project. That doesn't mean that one should be stopping the people in rural Cumbria from pushing ahead or prevent the legislation from being introduced to enable them to push ahead simply because it can't be replicated. There will also be risk involved. If you trust a community, if you take the basic view, and, and we've got to be honest here, I, anybody in this room must understand that a world in which one can produce five reasons why it's impossible for the community to cut their grass is a world that's gone mad, that's never dealt with a community. Some of this, I'm afraid, is, to me, a little bit detached and a little bit patronizing. My experience of, despite all the limits I've talked about, despite all the lack of replicability, despite the fact that there's risk involved, my actual experience of dealing with communities is that they are able to do very remarkable things. They do not do the kinds of things we fear. In planning, the planners often pretend that the communities will do some extreme thing. They will either turn some Cotswolds village into a concrete jungle, or they will block all planning entirely because they're total nimbies. They assume they will either 
fall down and throw their legs in the air and hand themselves over to the power of the supermarket, or they're kooky idealists who are going to stop any private sector investment coming in. This is not my experience of dealing with communities. My experience of dealing with communities is that what you have in a room is a room much like this, with people often like this and different people too. In fact, one of the exciting things about dealing with a parish in Cumbria is that it's much more varied than the people in this room, the voices that you hear in that room. The planner who imagines sitting in Penrith or Carlisle that they can somehow involve all the voices of the vulnerable, all the very intricate issues of local specification and economics, simply on the basis of their superior education, misses what happens in that room, misses the fact that people in that room care. They care about the affordable housing and will build it because they want their children to have a house. They care about issues of the elderly. They are often, against their better instincts, shamed in those rooms into giving concessions to people they wouldn't otherwise have given concessions to. They often find compromises in ways that you wouldn't expect and very creative solutions. Because the kinds of issues they're dealing with are not issues of expert elites. They are issues which give a competitive advantage to people who understand the local area well who care deeply about it, who have the will and desire to transform that place. And sometimes this means that it goes well beyond cutting grass, and it's on this that I'll finish. We've been running a super-fast broadband project in Cumbria. You would have thought that was almost the nth degree of something a community should never be involved in. The technological hurdles you need to deal with, the point-to-point -point microwave links, the point-to-multipoint, the fibre optic cable decisions, whether you want 100 meg asymmetric service or not, what you're going to do with European state aid regulations, how you're going to deal with British telecom infrastructure design, where you find the cabinets, where you find the exchanges, all these sort of things you would have thought would mean that it's exactly what should be done from London or from Carlisle and yet our communities by gathering 100 brains and 100 parishes organising themselves as volunteers have outthought the government and British Telecom on almost every one of those issues and will probably end up with installing, I believe, the fastest broadband network in this country for about a tenth of the price in about half the time. So to conclude, this does not mean big society is the answer to everything. There are so many things big society will never be able to do. There are so many holes you can pick in it. And if you set it up in that way, it's going to look absurd. But as somebody who's engaged with it over the last year, I think it's something we can be very, very proud of. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Rory. And, um, Thank all the members of the panel for their provocative and interesting um, uh, contributions. We're now going to throw open four questions. Um, there's lots of people already coming in. I'm going to abuse my position first of all and ask the first question and after that um, turn to. Um, it, it is a question really for, um, for David and Francis um, uh, about their sort of generalised hostility towards the idea of the big society um, and wonder whether that extends to all elements of it. Um, the, uh, and it picks up on a point that Carl was making about um, um, the development of mutuals and social enterprises, um, uh, particularly within public services, um, and also the question of bipartisanship. Um, 
the Labour government, in fact, introduced a form of mutual. Um, uh, the, uh, in particular, there were the Surrey nurses within the NHS and social work practices where social workers were um, organised more like GP practices and professional partnerships. Um, the present government's endorsed that particular, uh, that particular uh, idea and is indeed developing it. Um, and indeed is working towards ideas of developing mutual social enterprises within other areas of public services. Does your sort of your hostility towards the big society ideas um, in general cover uh, that too? And are you do you object to those kind of developments, Francis? No, I don't. Um, as I said, I think volunteering is fantastic. I do it. I love doing it. I've always done it. And I think the kind of thing that Rory's talked about is fantastic. I think it's absolutely brilliant. We should allow that to flourish. It's not exactly volunteering. It's employee yeah. ownership. Of, and, um, and social enterprises. Um, I work for a charity. We ran a social enterprise. We were the, well, I'm the only person that's ever run a real business inside a prison um, as a social enterprise. You know, um, absolutely, that's all fantastic. That should flourish, as should localism and giving local power to local people. I, have, I, I absolutely support that, but through a democratic structure. The problem with the big society is, is that it's not that. I think the big society is just a smokescreen for cutting public services. And it's not at all about localism and giving power to local people because if you give power to local people you have to do it through some democratic structure and whilst it's great to have local projects and local businesses and, and social enterprises and voluntary organizations and proliferation of that that is fantastic that is very lively that is a very lively energetic part of our democracy but it doesn't involve everybody it doesn't involve for example children they don't turn up to these things when i was a councillor you know, we, I, had a, I had a surgery every week. There were a very small number, a group of people who used to come every week to come and uh, complain or ask for things or whatever. You know, that, but as a counsellor, you go out and you go and talk to people. And you go to the talk to people who don't come to meetings, who are not involved in coming along to sort out fibre optic cables or something. It's all the people who have mental health problems, the people who are drunk, the people who are victims of domestic violence. You know, all the people who are not part of this big society. Because the, the kind of big society uh, proposed by Rory, I think, actually means that it is quite a limited group of people who can participate in that. And I think democracy is about bringing in the other people too. And they're being excluded because they are the people who are going to lose out on the public services that have been cut in the name of big society. Some of the social work practices actually do have looked after children on their board. Yes, they do. Um, yes. I well, I mean, my, I also feel that um, I'm not hostile to the whole grouping of ideas, but what, I'm, what I am hostile to, I think, is the way that it's assembled into a sort of all-purpose patchwork of many, many different ideas. And the... The issue that I think is, is important here is, is, well, where are the limits? What are the things that the big society can do? What are the things that it can't do? And I don't think it's good enough to say, well, we can experiment and we can try lots of new things, because we can't experiment with, I think, um, areas of welfare and you know social care and vulnerability. Um, so... You know, I also, I think I mentioned that um, 
I also, you know, find the idea of employee-owned businesses and mutualism, you know, potentially exciting. So, you know, not everything in it is bad, but I think the way that it's being presented is is bad. Did, did either Rory or Carl, did you want to come back on any of that point? Carl? The mutuals point, uh, mm. specifically. Uh, I think there's been some work by the Office for Public, public Management on mutual organisations that, mm. that suggests, for example, that sick, sickness rates are lower among staff uh, uh, in mutuals. I suppose the question I'd want to know is that, are they genuine mutuals? Is there a genuine transformation process going on when you turn those organisations organizations into mutuals or are they just the sort of hybrids that I think David Billis is quite worried about that potentially will ultimately if anything goes wrong still just be a burden upon the state where the state has to sort of pick uh, uh, them up the other question I asked there about mutualization is this issue of an asset lock and the concern is that over the medium term is mutualization just step one of a two-step privatization yeah, there's, there's something maybe I'm, I'm struggling to, to communicate here. Um, if you were to come to Cumbria and talk to communities, you would get a positive response. And somehow the, the way in which it's being talked about isn't reflecting that. There seems to be a gap between the rhetoric and the reality, which I'm struggling to overcome. Um, and it's something I used to experience in international development. Um, when I was you know, running a small NGO, you would sit in a panel like this and everyone would say, well, there's a big problem with you know, NGOs. Is it sustainable? How about gender inclusion? What about the mainstreaming issues? Have you thought about the national development strategy? To what extent are you creating parallel processes? And to some extent, I sort of felt, come to Kabul, look at this project, meet people, have a look at this thing. Because so much of this, I mean, of course it's true. All these things that you've said are true. You know, maybe some of these projects uh, don't have as many young people involved as they could. But some of these arguments are, are strange arguments. To say that we cannot experiment because there are some things we cannot experiment with uh, is like saying we cannot walk because we cannot walk to the moon, right? I mean. We, we need to try to be realistic about talking about serious changes in people's lives. Some of these things are legislative changes. I mean, we talk as though it was always possible for a community to actually push their own plan forward. It was not. Right? We talk as though some of these community asset transfers were always there. They weren't. This is new legislation. These are new innovations. These are things communities are taking advantage of to change their lives. Not to change every aspect of their lives, not to take over every aspect of essential services, but to change them. And unless we can find that middle ground to talk about what's actually happening, we're going to be in trouble. Okay, thank you. So, a number of questions. Um, we're going to, I'll take two or three at a time. Uh, and could you say who you are? Before the, so, start with you. Yes. Mm -hmm. Oh, there's a microphone's coming around. Could you wait for the microphone in each case? Okay, hi. Um, my name's Ruth. I'm here from Housing Association. And this um, question is for Rory Stewart, um, who seems to be a little bit preoccupied with the planning system this evening. Um, but it's, it's one thing to talk about how changes... Um, are enabling kind of upwardly mobile young people to build their homes 
but um, it's another thing to think about how we're going to continue to care for the most um, vulnerable people in our society despite these cuts and talking about offenders, people leaving care, people who are mentally ill and people living on the poverty line. So I was wondering if you could give me an example, um, a concrete example from your own constituency of where these new policy changes um, have actually improved care for the most vulnerable in your community. Okay. okay. Martin. Uh, Martin Rathfelder from the Socialist Health Association. I wonder if the panel could talk a little about, bit about whether size is important. <laughs> Both in terms of the sorts of communities, I mean, what, what Rory is saying is that the sorts of places where this works are little villages. And the rest of you, I think, are... Um, Urban metrosexuals, is that the term? <laughs> um, but also, the, I think a more, more, more important issue, I think, is about the sort of monolithic nature of the state. Um, is that also an issue? We abolished charitable hospitals and we nationalised health services and we built the biggest organization in the world except the Chinese army and then we found it was actually quite hard to manage it breaking it into chunks is that part of the big society one question from up there yes mm -hmm. um, I'm Tom from the British Red Cross um, it's it's a question about um, Carl's point towards the end about civic association and, and, and civic trust and, uh, and Rory's point about, about limits. Um, I'm just wondering whether the panel have any thoughts about um, what we can do in terms of trust because it seems very central to me that there's a lack of trust in, in the country and that trust has declined by half since the 1950s on all sorts of metrics. Um, would big society be able to address this and is it supposed to or is that beyond the limit of big society um, and is it indeed beyond the limit of the, the welfare state um, and uh, the, second, the second part of my question would be is there a question is there something to do with related to trust about gumption which is that the Rochdale pioneers didn't talk about democratic accountability I'm sure they didn't really particularly talk about resources either and I'm just wondering what um, perhaps David and Francis might, might address on that. Okay, so three questions. One helping, about helping the vulnerable. Does size matter? Uh, and uh, the role of trust. Um, Rory, would you like to come back on the first yeah. point about helping the vulnerable? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really good question. And I think uh, the answer to that is that that is a central role for the state. I think that's why the state... <laughs> No, I mean, I, I, I'm very happy to see very, very big central roles for the state in helping the vulnerable, and in many, many other areas, in most areas of our lives, indeed. I'm quite comfortable with the fact that the state occupies a huge amount of our GDP and does an enormous amount for us. I do not want to live in some anarchic universe without a government, right? It's a very, very useful function of the state, because in many ways, one of the problems of small communities can be the tyranny of small communities. 
the existence of a state that is there to focus, and indeed the very best work that's being done at the moment, particularly on issues of housing, has been done by housing associations within Cumbria. And most of those are not voluntary organisations. A lot of them actually have inherited state assets. They're running them as associations now, but they are focused on the vulnerable. They're doing so in a very, very good way, supplemented by social services, supplemented by health professionals, and supplemented by people paid for by taxpayers. Big society should not be taking responsibility for those things any more than it should be for your brain surgery. But I'm very, very happy to describe 20 other things that big society could do very well, perhaps better than a business, an individual, a voluntary organization, or the state. But looking after the most vulnerable in society, I would not think is a responsible use. Thanks. Other reactions from the panel? I'm a, not only to that question, but to the other questions about size, the role of size and the role of trust. I, I, well, I'm still sort of fretting about the fact that three people in this room have just tweeted that I could have been described as an urban metrosexual. <laughs> D- did you not hear before? I didn't say grass, I said grass. Um, uh, a um, northern urban metrosexual. <laughs> Um, is, is size important? Yes, I think size is important, uh, but I'm going to interpret your question in a slightly different way because we have been getting some flack in the sector that we have big charities that, uh, that are too big, they're inefficient, so on and so on. Tom's organisation, do you know what your turnover is, Tom? About 140 million. Okay. Camden PCT is about 240 million. Okay. British Red Cross is one of about half a dozen organisations of, of that size. We're not big. Yeah, and, and, and this sort of, in a related issue, I am, to be honest, I am sick of being told that the sector should merge so that we can find these uh, wonderful efficiencies that are going to be plucked out of the air because clearly as big individual organisations, you know, we've got lots of fat that we can trim off. It's nonsense, okay. Ian Bruce of the Centre for Charity Effectiveness sort of once said the reality about public services is that if you, if you want to deliver public services at any scale at all, there are relatively few organisations that can do the heavy lifting of, of, of public services. So I think, I think size is important, but in the opposite direction to which it's being scaled. If you look at the social problems we're trying to address, the problem is these organisations are not big enough. No, they're, they're not too big. Um, Tom, on the trust issue... Um, I, I, think there's, I think that's contested about whether or not trust has declined and I think Honor O'Neill would strongly argue that these metrics showing this decline in generalised trust they don't show any decline at all we can sort of argue about that I'd sort of relate that to, though, to this issue of reciprocity and is it trust that's the problem or is it the decline in reciprocity okay Okay. Um, Yeah, the size question, I think, is interesting. It raises some things we haven't discussed. Um, Philip Blond's book, Red Tory, I think contains some quite interesting critiques of corporate capitalism and large-scale business. And... um, and I think that's, that's part of these ideas that maybe we've lost and that we need to return to. Um... When it comes to size of the state, I mean, I I totally take Rory's point that we do want the removal of of unreasonable uh, constraints on you know people's ability <coughs> to practice you know self help and to you know and to do you know good things locally. I don't think there's a problem with that at all. 
But I think it's important to make a distinction, I think, that we've also slightly overlooked, which is that I think there is an important difference between the sort of the self-help agenda and the pursuit of one's own interests at community level and the, um, the other part of the sector, which is basically about caring for other people and about sort of taking care of um, social problems and vulnerable people and a whole range of other of other issues that can easily get overlooked in all the excitement about you know self-help of you know in, in building your own facilities or your own houses um, and I think that's maybe sort of partly where the point up there about the gumption of the Rochdale pioneers I mean yes in a way it's it's easier I think to harness people's energies of you know around um, self-help you know than it is about um, wider you know wider care issues can I, can I come in very briefly? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, I, I think maybe what I, I didn't articulate properly is that insofar as these communities are obviously combinations of people like us and other people who aren't in this room, um, there is not always an incredibly clear difference in, in, in real interaction with communities between self-help and care for others. I mean, one of the things that is striking about communities in Cumbria is that at the same time as they're doing things which seem quite self-interested, a lot of these communities are also doing things which are sort of half self-interested and half altruistic. For example, Alston has set up its own community ambulance, its own community snowplow. It's also uh, funding entirely in Cumbria the air ambulance, which is one and a half million pounds a year, which provides the mountain rescue is entirely voluntary. Hospice at Home, which is a very strong voluntary organisation. I mean, these things operate often at exactly the same parish level and are organized in the same parish units and through the same parish conversations as the more inverted commas selfish activities. And that's not surprising because a lot of the problems about analyzing what happens in a community is an idea that somehow one can reduce a human to an irreducible virtue or an irreducible selfish gene. Francis, you want to come in? Yeah. Um can anybody name me a community that's set up its own hostel for people released from prison after serving a sentence for a sex offence? I mean, the trouble is that the, the, what you're describing is wonderful, and I love it, and I'm part of it, and I'm there with you, but what about the people? You know, this is only about nice people. The trouble is that I spend my life helping horrible people. <laughs> and, and criminals, you know, nobody wants them. And what are we going to do with them? You know, because the people I deal with every day have got really serious mental health problems and they're alcoholic and they take drugs and they burgle my house. <laughs> and I, you know, no community is going to say we're going to set up and we want to set up a lovely little house next to, you know, next to me. When I was a councillor, we had terrible problems with, with travellers coming. Nobody wants them. You know, I don't know if you're watching the, the big fat, um, my big fat gypsy wedding. It's just the most fantastic thing. But, you know, th there are people that nobody wants living next to them. And it's a real problem. And that's why we need the state. And the big society, you know, covers, masks that. We have to have arbiters for this. And we've got to have somewhere to put criminals, not in prison. Rory. Okay. Just, just, just very quickly on this, because this is a very interesting issue. Of course, I agree with. 80% of what was said there, right? I mean, of course it's got to be true. It's more than usually. But actually, I just wanted to come in on a kind of bitty point just to try to illustrate what I'm talking about. We, we have the Appleby Horse Fair in Cumbria. 
And the way in which gypsies and travellers were traditionally dealt with was through a central government diktat. We have had much more progress over the last two, three years actually engaging communities, sitting down with communities, discussing this, because those areas which only a community can do, the local knowledge of where exactly they're going to decide to put the site, what idea they have of their town, what form of history and identity they have, actually has ended up with a less divisive, more peaceful, more tolerant, more compassionate situation than was achieved by central government dictates. So it's not always the case that a community is going to end up in a worse position than the central government, although I agree with you, there is still a very, very big role for government. Right. <laughs> Diana Leet, I'd spend a lot of my time um, thinking about philanthropy and foundations. Um, as a uh, an admirer of all of the panel members, and a and I was born in Carlisle, I feel a need to uh, see if there is a link between. Uh, what everyone's saying. And I may think maybe that that link might be uh, particularism. It seems to me that what the voluntary sector is fantastic at is being particularist. It does things well because it has a passion and it cares. And I think that's also what Rory is talking about. The problem comes if you don't feel, if you don't happen to be one of the passions of people, and then you are in big trouble. Um, and I'm very reassured to, to hear Rory say that, that that isn't the point of big society. And what I'm now hearing is that, that big society is great at the particular things it's great at, but it's not great at everything. Um, yes. Hakan um, Hakan from Social Policy here. Um, it's a question to Rory, or maybe um, just concerned because it's clearly everything is working in Cumbria, <laughs> and. Um, the way you are talking about it is telling us things are working, but you are not telling us why they are working and would they work elsewhere. And the second point is, um, I mean, we sort of seen this obsession at some level with community and international development years and years for the two decades now. Um, in many cases, we have fantastic project acro projects across countries but do they amount to a big society at the end? I mean, they are very good projects. Thank you. Mm -hmm. And one from up here. Uh, yes. Um, my name is Markus Ketala. I'm also based uh, at the Department of Social Policy here at LSE. Uh, my question. Uh, initial question at least was very similar to Hakan's in that I, I wondered if we should unpack a little bit what we mean by communities um, because obviously the community that I live in Hackney I'm not sure how how all of this would be operationalized so that I could participate for example um, and the second thing I want to mention or ask was about uh, something I came across a couple of years ago I was looking at uh, labor new labor policies on community participation and uh, 
apart from the specific examples that I heard tonight, I'm not quite sure if the underlying ideas about, I think the, the sub-theme for the report was uh, power to the people, real people, real power, um, is, is very different. And I wonder if you could comment on that. Okay. Well, I think it's a very interesting question underlying certainly the first two questions, which is in a sense, well, why does it work sometimes and why does it not work at other times? And is it a particularist? Uh, so, reactions. Does it does it work in some places? Does it work in some places and not in others? Well, no. Why? It, it clearly, yeah. that is clearly yeah. the case. The question is why does okay. it work in some places? The, the, and not the point I'm making is that, for example, volunteers. We know that those with the highest propensity to volunteer are professional, middle-aged, middle class, and those people have a geography. They are in some places more than in other places. So the question I'm asking is, does it appear to work in some places more than in other places? Because there are more middle class professional people living in those places. Cumbria is not particularly middle class. So it is, so. it's, it's, well, it's, 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 a, it's an interesting, uh, it's a very interesting question, right? Uh, the uh, Cumbria, our average income in my constituency is under £16,000 a year. Um, a lot of the farmers who are participating are reporting, particularly upland farmers, Incomes down in the six, seven thousand pounds a year range, and genuinely, if you were to go to some of these places, uh, it's actually quite shocking conditions in which people are living. Um, but it is also true that there are going to be many things. I mean, I think I can tell you roughly speaking why I think things work, and they don't always work. I mean, it's really important, and any of you who are involved in community development work anywhere will understand that actually a loss of the experience is failure chaos, comedy, risk, farce, right? I mean, there's certainly not a narrative of wonderful, wonderful success. There are blazing rows, there's money misspent, there are people, I mean, it, it, this is, you know, it takes a lot of um, patience to stick with it. If it wasn't for the fact that actually at the end of it, you genuinely see something which is fantastic, uh, the whole process is is really debilitating and exhausting, right? So certainly don't want to suggest it's all, it's all wonderfully successful. Um, what is it that works? Well, of course, a lot of the things that work, I believe it's fundamentally about three things. It's about knowledge, it's about power, and it's about legitimacy. And those things and the way in which those help in a particular place and the advantages that gives the community over central government, of course, makes more sense when, as the gentleman pointed out, you're dealing with a small area. Of course it works best, as somebody else pointed out, when you're dealing with a rural area. Of course it works best when there are elements of history or identity, or even potentially demography and skills which reinforce that. Um, but it isn't primarily about resources. That, that is something that I want to say. It, it isn't, in my experience, primarily about whether or not there's government money standing behind it. The major constraint we face is not money. The major constraints we face, as you can imagine, are people who want to do this, and on the other hand, government regulations preventing us from doing what we want to do. There's a question over there, yes. For HSBC Bank, um, during the financial crisis, we talked a lot about too big to fail, and after the financial crisis, especially in the UK, there were a lot of regulation around 
um, making the bank smaller and uh, separating investment bank from the retail bank. Why we're not applying the same logic to the state? Because the structure of the state, in my opinion, is as complex as the structure of the financial banks. Why we are asking why the state and uh, uh, the collectivity, the community, is asking to the banks to be smaller, to be slicker, and to be fair, and why we're not asking the same thing to the state. And the second thing that I wanted to raise is, I lived in seven different countries up to this point. Britain is the only country that I lived in where there are cuts that are made, but there is a fundamental ideological and more philosophical idea around why the cuts are needed in this country. And that idea, it can be a smoke idea, it can be whatever idea, but the, but the point is that there is a reason that is raised by the politician in these countries around the big society, around whatever. There is a solution and something that those politicians want to replace, okay, we are doing cuts, but we want to give the people a vision around why we are doing the cuts. And I would like somebody to tell me also on the big society, apart from being pragmatic and what are the ideas, what are the five values of this big society? Thank you. Thank you. Uh, <coughs> gentleman in the middle there. Mm -hmm. Thanks. Uh, Varun Sitharam, I'm a local government officer at the London Borough of Enfield. Um, I have two questions. Um, the first thing, um, when people talk about communities, it sounds to me like you're talking about everybody in the community, for example, where we talked about uh, the affordable housing thing, right? It seems to me like you mentioned, you sound like everybody in that area all together wanted to do the same thing. And it sounds to me like, you know, like when you're playing football and I'm playing football with my friends and we're like, yeah, let's play football. And the guy that doesn't like football just gets left behind. Do you know what I mean? So what happens to the people that live in that area that didn't want that affordable housing bill? It's one question. I think I'm going to restrict you to one question, actually, because there are so many okay. people that want to get in, so that's all right. A gentleman there. No, just behind you, Adam. No, 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 there. <laughs> I'm invisible today. Um, I'm Benedict Ricky, I'm from New Philanthropy Capital, but this question is in a personal capacity. Um, I asked the uh, same question to Lord Natway of Shoreditch um, at an event not that long ago. Um, my question was, is the big society a good society? Um, my sense is that even if you achieve the big society, but all the other reforms that are proposed by the coalition government went, went through, what, what Britain would be in 10 years' time is not a place I'd like to live in. Um, and I think a lot of people would probably feel the same. If you, even if you're successful with a big society, do you, feel that, well, do you feel that that would be a good society to live in? Okay, well, we've got three questions there. Reactions? I wanted to have a go now. Um, <laughs> I think I want to answer your question. I don't think it is, and I think the, the problem is that I don't think the, 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 the big society is that we'll create a society which is more fair, more equal, or equal opportunities, and safer. 
I think it is about inequality because the answer to your, to your question about I think the big society is an ideological smokescreen for cuts. I mean, the, the, this government wants a smaller state. It wants to cut back on the public, uh, public services. That's all it's concerned with. It's not concerned with banks. And it wants to cut back. And it's created the big society as a smokescreen in order to, to cover that, that agenda. So the, I think, no, it won't be a safer society. Um, and I also think we're just going back to some other bits and pieces that I just wanted to say something about. Um, volunteering is not necessarily about in your community. We, we, keep, we think we're very stuck on geography here. I think it's because we're all going to move to Cumbria. It's a lovely place, although I am a city girl. Um, I don't know what I do in the, in the countryside. Um, it's... Volunteering is, is, is multilinear. It's, it's also about working the Red Cross. It's about giving money. It's about doing all sorts of other things and giving time. It's even online you can do it. You know, there's all sorts of different ways you can do things. So it's not just about communities. And, and the complexity of that somehow has to be managed. And the democracy of it, I keep coming back. The fundamental point is accountability and democracy. And that is the big difference between the state and the banks. The health service is democratically accountable. You know, it's, it's open. When I sit on our PCT, our meetings are open. The public can come. They don't because the meetings are very boring. But you can if you want to. Um, but I want to go to and I want to hear what's happening at the bank. It's all secret. It's not accountable. Accountability is in, and democracy are the basis of our society and that's what means that we get redistribution, we get fairness, we get taxation um, and that is how you create a safe, fair and equal society. If you fragment that, you really do damage to it. And that's not about cutting out all the things that Rory's talked about, which are absolutely brilliant, but that's not what is democracy and that's not what a complicated state can be based on. <laughs> we, we can have a <laughs> okay. yeah um, you know just in the spirit of going back to various points because so many interesting things are floating around but I think one thing we haven't talked about is the idea and it goes back to a question earlier about trust and I, and I think um, one of the issues here is that if we're going to promote trust then the big society idea has to be seen as a, as a just or a fair idea and the way that it's implemented and the way in which these ideas are put out needs to be seen as fair and I think that's also the key to whether or not an increased or a big society is a, is a good society. I think the fairness agenda is very, very important and I think if we, if we over-idealise the idea of community and we overlook the fact that you know, you know, communities, of course, have all kinds of positive values to them, but they're also uh, places where there are conflicts and where there is unfairness and where there are, you know, where there's power relationships and everything. Um, the other point I just wanted to go back to, and we haven't really talked about very much, is the uh, the international uh, development agenda and the fact that, you know, like with so many of these ideas, which in a sense, I mean, the big society is a continuation or it's an extension of ideas about the voluntary sector and NGOs and social capital that we've been kicking around for decades. And, um, you know, one of the interesting, you know, stories, I think, about civil society and NGOs in the world of international development is that 
you know, they were discovered in the 1980s, they were heavily promoted in the 1990s, and a whole range of problems and issues and limitations have emerged, and we need to learn from those things. We need to learn about the sorts of accountability problems that were generated. We need to learn about the kind of sustainability issues. And we need to learn this very important lesson that, you know, you can't build these kinds of relationships and organisations and structures quickly. You can't have a kind of big bang approach. You have to build things incredibly slowly. Okay, I'm going to take um, three, there are three final questions on yes, yes, on yes. Okay. And make, make the question short, please, because we're very nearly out of time. Um, my name's Fran Perrin. I work for a charitable foundation called the Indigo Trust. The Big Society has been a very major part of the government's communication strategy. In fact, I think the first event the Prime Minister held at number 10 was about the Big Society. We've heard some inspiring examples tonight. Um, but given that, Rory, you've told us that the enemy of the big society is that it's been overhyped and overclaimed, can you tell me what part of the government's narrative you disagree with? Okay. Uh, okay. Hi there, my name is Garnet. I'm a student at LSE. It seems that a lot of the criticism ha has focused not so much on the big society itself, but on the cuts. Um, but it seems to me that the cuts aren't the result of a big society vision, the result of the deficit, that the government uh, in the past has been spending more on social programs than it has. Uh, so it seems to me that the choice isn't between sort of cuts in big society on the one hand or nothing on the other hand, but given that cuts are necessary to balance the budget, or something is necessary to balance the budget, um, big society efforts might as well try and fill in some of that gap. So it seems like you've given a bit of a false choice. I wonder if you agree or disagree. Last question. Yes. Mm. Hello, um, my name's Celestina, and um, I just love politics. That's why I'm here. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, so, should we put so much emphasis and dependency on a term that's far too ambiguous? Um, Francis, I've heard you make several points, which um, Rory has made clear does not um, encompass uh, your view of the big society. If you two can't agree on what constitutes the big society, how will everyone out there actually make it happen? Well, that's a good question on which to end. So <laughs> could I ask um, all four of you to uh, respond as best you can to some of those <laughs> points um, and maybe just make any last thoughts you had before we close. Um, let's start with David. Okay. Uh, um, I think the kindest thing I can say about the big society idea is that it's... Uh, it's a, it's a term which is mobilizing debate. It's brought us here you know, tonight. And clearly, it's, a, it's an intersection of a whole range of really important discussions about the state, about the market, about citizenship, about the voluntary sector, about NGOs, about all of these things. But I don't think it gets us very far in moving forward those discussions. I think we need to look much more critically and historically at these ideas if we're going to come up with new arrangements which are going to help us deal with some of the problems of the way in which the state and, and the market operate um, and in ways which are not unfair and are not going to contribute to growing inequality. Okay, thank you. Francis. Um, oh dear. Um, <laughs> 
I think the debate is very healthy. I think it's very useful. I think we are drawing out a lot of really important questions. Um, but I think it is also very ideological. Um, and, there, and it is linked to cuts because it is linked to a vision of what the state is and what the state should do. And I think that um, although when David Cameron was started to talk about it, it was quite loose because I don't think actually he is very ideological. I think he came in with a very broad view vaguely of what was going to happen, except that he does have a vision and, and Conservatives, the party, the Conservative Party has a vision and has always had a vision, which is perfectly legitimate, of a small state and it should be filled in elsewhere and they're, they're articulating this as a big society. So they want to cut the size of the state. That is a political choice. It's a legitimate political choice. And actually, uh, they would have done it, and they have done it before, whatever the economy. And I don't think that the cuts actually are related particularly to the state of the economy, because they're far more than we need, and it would have happened if we'd had a buoyant economy. So the big society then is moving in because they believe like 19th century people used to believe that you know you have a small state and you have lots of little fragmented people doing all sorts of wonderful stuff. Well, I don't. I don't agree with that. I think we actually should have a state that is an arbiter, that is democratic, that is controlling. And I'm a great fan of taxation. This makes me terribly, terribly unpopular with almost everybody I know. I, you know, it is, it is the way we share. It's the way we invest in our communities, the way we share, and we should have lots and lots of it, and we should share it out. The end of praise for more taxation is unusual from this platform. Um, Kevin. Um, coming back to the, 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 the cuts issue, you, you can't separate out big society from cuts because the organisations, like the Howard Lead, that are being expected to deliver this agenda and save the uh, uh, money for the exchequer in the medium term are having their capacity cut out from underneath them right now, right across the country. Yeah, we, we mustn't for, forget that. Uh, this question about, about big society and, and sort of what is it and is it an ideology, I wonder if it's actually ideology sort of almost suggested it's that it's a bit more coherent than actually is because it's fulfilled with contradictions, I, I think. So big society might not last past Christmas, yeah? <laughs> but the issues underneath it will, and we still have to debate those issues underneath it. Yeah. Rory. Okay. Um, so what, what didn't I like uh, about the government's message? I really hate the association with cuts. I think it's completely distracting. I think uh, presenting big society as though it's a solution to cuts misses the whole point. If it's about anything remotely attractive, remotely good, to answer the gentleman there, it's about local democracy. It's about the knowledge, the desire, the creativity of local communities being liberated. And in response to the gentleman who I didn't really quite manage to answer uh, about affordable housing, um, it seems to me that that question of how the decisions are made is core, and, and that's why your question about democracy is so important. I'm actually very, very interested in hyperlocalism and democracy at the parish and town level. One of the answers to the question on how decisions are made is they're made by votes. And thinking through how those votes are operated, what sort of legitimate institutions you use so that 1,500 or 5,000 people or a French commune is actually able to come to a decision and have some form of dispute resolution which is legitimate except is going to be central. The thing on which I would like to conclude though is that 
the major threat that this is supposed to be dealing with is something that's very difficult for us sometimes to acknowledge or to see, I think, anyway, in my experience, which is that there is a creeping centralization at the heart of the modern project, an incredible belief in experts, in grand theory, an astonishing fear of the local, the particular, and the intricate. And I think if we're prepared not to destroy the state or bomb Baghdad, but into some way liberate some of the desires and energies of these communities, we may find that although we can do, says he very vulgarly, much less than we can pretend, we can do much more than we fear. Thank you. Well, I have to draw things to a close. Before I finally do, let me inform you there's a reception um, to which everyone is invited. Uh, it takes place in the atrium, which is just outside of here, uh, around towards the left-hand side. Uh, we look forward to seeing as many of you as possible there. But in the meantime, um, I would like to, when I started um, my introduction by saying that the idea of a big society was contested, I think, I think we've seen illustrations of that. Um, but actually, I, for one at least, have how I now have a much clearer idea of the, of the shape and the outlines of the big society, a clearer idea of its tensions uh, and its problems, but also of its potential to do good. And I think for that, I think we can thank our distinguished panel very much for their exciting and interesting contributions. Thank you.